0: One of the great things that we have our, today in our passage that we have before us is a passage that goes so far back when we talk about the Ten Commandments. And it is important. Many people think, you know, somebody wrote that, that Moses guy a long, long time ago. Does that have anything to do with us living in this culture, a culture that's changing so fast that things are so strange? And, but you know what? The reality is there's a lot about it that we can hear, that we can understand from the Ten Commandments. Zig Ziglar, many of you have heard some of his stuff. He's got some really funny quotes. One of the things he wrote, he said this. He said, if God would wanted us to live in a permissive society, he would have given us ten suggestions, not ten commandments. Which kind of makes sense, you know. But his point is, the scriptures that God gave us were not meant just for the people of that time, but for going on along and along. And so what we're doing this morning, we're going to continue in part two. Our very first one last week, if you were with us, we were looking at the first commandment was, you'll have no other gods before us. And that's a key thing, of course. And, of course, we talked about the fact that all around where the people of Israel live, there are all these different cultures and groups and beliefs and all these strange things that people believed in. And he's saying, wait a minute, you may have all these different gods, but for us, there's only one God. And so we looked at that passage, and we looked how important that was, because then it goes on to go from the the one commandment to the second commandment. Some people have said, you know, the first commandment sounds awful like the second commandment, and it sure does. It's really an extension of the first commandment. No other gods before us, but then it goes on in that passage, do not make an idol for yourself. Now I'm very aware that there's probably not a person in this room that sat in the last recent weeks has made any kind of idol. I can't imagine anybody out there carving an idol for us. It's not the world that we live in. It doesn't mean it doesn't have significance for us, and that's exactly what this is talking about. So we're going to be talking about the second commandment where it talks about you should not make an idol for yourself. And this is such an important passage because what it's dealing with is the whole situation And it's pointing us again to the idea of saying, what is the core things that God wants us to understand? And as you know, it's been for a thousand years and more. People have come to the Ten Commandments and saw that that was such a significant thing for God's people to be able to understand. If you were with us last week, you right. Remember, we did commandment number one. We talked about and God spoke to all these words. And then he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. And here was this verse, the key verse of last week. You shall have no other gods before me. They, again, they lived in a culture surrounded by all kinds of different cultures and people. But saying, for you, Israel, there's only one God. That God Yahweh, that God Jehovah, whatever you want to call the term, he is the one God. And so he said, you shall have no other gods before me. And so what we see when we come to this passage, when he says, don't make an idol for yourself, Exodus chapter 20 is important. And in that passage, he makes a point. He's saying, whatever you do, do not do what they're doing all around you. All around you, they're worshiping all these strange gods and things. He's saying, that's not for you. You are my people, and we're not going to do that. And you're not going to do those kind of things that they do. And so we see in this passage, and it says in, um, there in Exodus, it says, He says, verse 4, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above, in the earth below, in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them. And notice this phrase. This is an important phrase. We're going to come back to it in just a little bit. He said, for I am a jealous God. Right there, for many people, particularly for younger Christians, go whoop, whoop, whoop. What do you mean? God's a jealous God? God's a wonderful God. God is a kind God. What is this idea about a jealous God? I don't want to know about this thing about a jealousy. But again, what we're talking about here in this passage is very, very important. He said, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous guy. You can do it in different ways. You can say, you know, when you're 16 years old and you've got a girlfriend or something, so, well, I'm jealous because you're hanging around with that girl and that guy and I don't like that kind of stuff. That's that kind of jealousy. <coughs> but there's a good kind of jealousy. The jealousy of saying, I love you. I protect you. I want to see things that are good for you and I want to make sure that you're okay. So that's the kind of thing of a husband who's helping with a, a wife that's struggling. And so it's that jealousy of saying, I don't want to share you with anyone else, because we have this relationship that God has given us. And so he says, you must not bow down to all these different things. You must not worship them, for I, the Lord your God, is a jealous God. In other words, saying, I love you, Israel you're my people you're my chosen people you're the one that there we stood before the Lord not at Mount Horeb where the mountain was smoking and the flames were going and the place was shaking and he said I will make a covenant with you you will be my chosen people among all the people of all the world you are the privileged who have become my people Look around you, all these different nations, all these different cultures, all these different things. Out of all of these, God said, I take you, not because you're such a wonderful people. Keith read this passage. You know, we were jumping ahead several chapters. But the point is, Moses goes up in the mountain, up and down like three times. When he comes back, what are they doing? Oh, I just threw it into the pot and I got, you know, it burned it all up. And, and uh, it, just, it just happened. And there it was. And Moses goes, what are you thinking, or what are you not thinking, saying, do you know what you're doing here? Here I am on the mountain trying to serve you, and I come down, and you're doing this kind of thing, a golden calf. The very thing I told you not to do is the very thing you're doing. And obviously it didn't take them long to happen. I mean, it was up there, up in time three times. But he's saying, how can you do that? You must not bow down to them or worship them, for the Lord your God is a jealous God. It's a great Punish me the children for their father's sin, for the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now that passage is a problematic one for many people. We're going to come back to it in just a minute, hopefully. But notice if you would in this passage, it goes on here. But showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and who keep my commandments. See, that passage would be really hard, I would think, if we only had this passage. But the point is, excuse me, we lost the thing there for a second. This passage when he says, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generation. That does sound bad. It sounds really bad, like, really? I mean, you shouldn't have to do that. You get punished for your own sin. If I do something bad, I need to be punished for it, but it doesn't deal with other people. And particularly, why should my children have to be dealing with that? And what's happening here in this passage is saying, wait a minute, hang on. Because it's saying there do things that happen. Many of us would look and talk about our families. You can look about maybe families that maybe are not doing well. And you can see how that can be passed on from generation to generation, not just talking about, you know, dealing with all the other things the thing, but the fact that the reality of that oftentimes a family that's in struggle, that what they learn, not always good things, gets passed down to the next generation. Well, that's the way I always was with my wife. Really? Maybe that wasn't a good way to be dealing with her. But it happens that way, that you see this goes from generation to generation, To generation and what's important here is recognize it does go to seem to go through different generations and he's saying I am a jealous God punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generation that's a long time that'd be my parents grandparents great-grandparents And you say well that's a lot of punishment isn't it but it's the phrase that follows it that is so important when he comes back and he makes that statement saying but showing faithful love to a thousand generations. Think about that. A thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, he's making a comparison. In that comparison, he's saying, okay, here it is. Four generations, that seems tough. What is that like compared to a thousand generations of God's faithful love and care for his people? And so he's making this point. A thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, again, some people struggle with that passage, but when you recognize that there's going with that situation of saying, all right, four generations, that's tough. But what about a thousand generations of God's faithfulness? And what we have in this passage is so significant here because it keeps on reminding us again how God can work in such significant ways in our lives and wise that we not even understand it. Look, if you would, turn, if you would, to Exodus. You might have it in front of you because we talked about it. Exodus chapter 15. And turn with me, if you would, Exodus chapter 15. I'm going in the wrong direction. That doesn't help you when you go that way. In Exodus chapter 15, you have the passage we talked about last week was the Song of the Sea, about I will sing about the Lord. He's thrown the horse and the rider into the sea. And it says rejoicing with God and what he has done. And so what you have with that passage, that goes on there. Then you go on to chapter 19, and it talks about in the third month, and the same day, in the month the Israelites had left in Egypt, they entered the wilderness of Sinai. They departed from Rephidim. They entered the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness of Israel. And then he goes on and talks about where he brought them through, they, and he talked about the fact how they were going to see this experience that God had for them. So I'm picking it up in verse 7. It says, And Moses came back. He summoned the elders of his people, but before them with all these words that the Lord had commanded them. Then all the people responded together. Now notice this phrase, we will do all that the Lord had spoken. Remember, this is before, and Keith had read the passage about what happened there, about the big sin, which is often referred to as the great sin, the great sin. And he's going back and saying, oh, yeah, sure, Lord. He said, people said, yep, we're going to do all the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. Now notice verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear what I speak with you and always believe you. Then Moses reported the people's words to the Lord. And the Lord told Moses, go to the people and pur- purify them that today, and he goes on, hey, you got to wash your clothes. We talked about that two weeks ago. But jump down on the th- about the third day. That's verse 16. On the third day when morning came, There was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud in the mountains and a loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai, or often called Mount Horeb. They're probably talking about the same mountain. He he um, He said that the Lord came down in fire and smoke up to the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai on top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain and he went up. The Lord directed Moses to go down and warn the people not to break out before the Lord. Otherwise they may die. Even the priests who come to the Lord must purify themselves. And then pick it up down here. He goes to chapter 20, verse 1. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. And then the very first of the Ten Commandments, do not have other gods beside me. That's what we talked about last week. But notice the next one. Do not have other gods beside me. And he goes on. Do not make a, second one, an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above. In fact, turn me. You don't have to, but I'm turning over to Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 1. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 1. This is moving ahead of the time in terms of the, the story that we're telling. That's being further than the time. But the point is, Deuteronomy chapter 4 is one of these chapters where they're taking a lot of the things that Moses had been talking for a long time and bringing it back saying, here's some of the core things you're going to have to understand if you're going to be my people. And so what we have in this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1 to 5 goes like this. Now, Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinance that I'm teaching you to follow, so you may live, enter, and take possession in the land of the Lord. The Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You must not add anything to what I commanded you, or to take anything away from it, so you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I'm giving you." Now notice this, "...your eyes have seen what the Lord dealed at Baal Peor," which was a disaster. He talked about, "...for the Lord your God destroyed every one of you who followed Baal of Peor. But you who have remained faithful to the Lord your God are still alive today." Notice what he says in verse 5. Look. I've taught you statutes and ordinances, as the Lord my God has commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land that you're entering to possess. Carefully follow them, for this will show your wisdom and your understanding in the eyes of the people. When they hear about all the statutes, they'll say, this great nation is indeed a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God near to us as the Lord our God is to us? In other words, can you think of any nation that can come any work like what we are? What God has done for them? And so he says in verse 8, What great nation has righteous statutes and ordinance like the entire law? Only be on your guard. Diligently watch yourself so you don't forget the things that your eyes have seen. One of the things we talk about the Lord's Supper every week is that part of what we do is a remembrance. Do you remember what God did for you when you were overworking with the Egyptians? Do you remember how God redeemed you? Do you remember how God helped you as you went through that terrible wilderness? How he provided you for like 40 years? Do you remember that? And so he says, he said, don't forget the things that your eyes have seen so you don't slip from your mind as long as you live. Teach them to your children, your grandchildren. The day you stood before the Lord at God at Horeb or Sinai, the Lord said to me, assemble the people before me and you'll you'll hear my words. So they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth. Verse 11, if you came near and stood at the blaze of the mountain, a mountain blazing with fire. Now down to verse 15. He talks about the two tablets, picking up at verse 15. Be extremely careful, okay, this is again, he goes, be extremely careful for your own good because you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. In other words, all the things that you saw, did you ever see Yahweh? And the whole point is no. And the point is because you're never going to see Yahweh. This is really important because we say, well, didn't we see, you know, God do things like, like, you know, when, when they were out in the wilderness and, and there was a, there was the fire by night and there was the thing that, you know, the cloud. Yeah, that was something that showed God working, but did you ever actually see his face? And the reality, of course, is no, you're not. That's one of the things that's distinct about what we believe and what the Old Testament, New Testament is, that we don't see God in that way when we, he is not one that we can do it. And, I, you know, people say, well, we wish we had a God that we could see. We could look him right in his face. You say, well, you know, the way you can probably see him best is when you see him in Christ. You see him best when you see him in Christ at what has done. The, we call it, of course, the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. What a wonderful passage. And this point that he's making here is said: you want to see what God is like? Look at Jesus. But when he's talking about these passages we're talking about here, he wants to remind them. All around them, they were surrounded by all these different cultures. And they said, yes, we can show you what our God looks like. How come you can't see yours? Because the God that we serve is so so important, not just so much important, but is so holy that we cannot see him as he is. Now, some people struggle with that. Like, I like to just see him as he is. It's like, you're not going to do it. And yet, it's very, very important because this passage gets reminding us the fact, the fact this is different from every other culture that surrounds Israel. And the point he's trying to make when we look at the passage today is talking about the fact that here what God has done for us, we can see things that God does We can see that the burning fire, and we can see the things it does. Remember when he told Moses, no, you can't see my face, but I'm going to put you in the cleft of that rock. And you're not actually going to see that, but you're going to experience that. And I just can't imagine what that would be like when, like, the Lord comes washing over him, kind of like, and it's like, all right, you got to see the back of me. You've never going to see my face. And, of course, that hasn't changed. We don't see God in that way. The invisibility of God is one of the things we talk about when we talk about the nature of God, and that's important. Turn with me, if you would, real quickly to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, we're going way over in the other direction. And I'm sorry, i am lost this passage real quick. Fran, you have it right in front of you. 1 Timothy. Nope, that's not the passage I wanted. Okay, the passage is talking about the fact that there is only one God. And he talks about the fact that we can only we cannot see him who he truly is. And that's what makes this passage so interesting. Because we would like to be like the other people. The face of God, wouldn't that be neat to see him? And yet the passage is saying, no, you're not. There is that... Separation between us, a God who is ultimately fully holy. We who are people who continue to sin, and yet God provides a way for us to have a relation with Him. And this passage, this passage in Exodus, this one what we see in Deuteronomy, keep reminding us again that God is God and we're not. And this passage keeps reminding us again. Here, this passage is talking about the thing in chapter in, in the second one. The first one, you'll have no other God before me. The second one, you won't make any idols. The reality is we're all about idols. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, he made the statement. He said, all of us are, are, are like workers in a shop making idols in our life. He's absolutely right. We have things that become idols, things that become important to us, things where we find our status, where we think we find our understanding, where we think that we're connected in some way, where we have something to give or something to that, something that's away from God. And Calvin keeps coming back and saying, you know what? We're all idol makers. Just a question of what kind of idol you want to make. And he keeps coming back to saying, Calvin does, a saying all of us have to struggle with that. And all of us have to come, each come back and say, Lord, it's ultimately all about you. Not about me. Not about that. It's all about you. And so this first thing, we talked about the first one. No other gods. Second one, no other idols. The good thing is, I guess I have a confession to make. I'm an idol maker. The good news is, I'm in good company, because so are you. And each of us have to come back and say, what are the idols in my life? The things are where I find significance, where I find life, where I find importance, where I'm found where people will like me. And it keeps coming back, wait a minute, is this now about you, or is this about Christ? Is this about what God has done, or about what you want to do? And it keeps calling us, saying, no other idols, period. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We pray that you be with us and help us. We thank you for your goodness to us. help us when we prepare our hearts for the, for, um, for the, as we come to the table and ask that you be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.